is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Hello, Michelle Stanley here with you today on the Country Hour this afternoon talking cotton because according to some research released this week, NT Cotton brings no economic benefit. This is really a a fraction of 1% of agricultural employment and if governments are looking for policies to expand agricultural employment, uh, they really should probably be looking at other industries. What are your thoughts when you hear that? Do you agree? Or is it too much of a simplistic view? 0487 991057. Let me know your thoughts this afternoon. Keen to get your take. 0487 991057 is the text line. Also this afternoon, there's still more rain falling across the Territory. And while it does mean some big smiles for pastoralists, it also brings a little extra work. After one, you'll hear how a cattle producer is cutting back the weeds without having to lift a finger. Basically, we're not. Um, we remove the stock, which is, is essentially the problem, and um, nature seems to manage herself. You hear more on that after one o'clock. But first this afternoon, I want to chat with you about durian. The notoriously stinky fruit. You hear it's banned on public transport in some Asian countries. And Kim has been in touch on that text line 0487991057. Kim says they were on a light plane holidaying in the Solomon Islands. One of the passengers had bags of newly gathered mimis small seashells which they dry and link into necklaces for traditional shell money. As the flight went on, the mimis stank out the whole plane and had the pilot retching. When they landed, he made a new rule, all future mimi bags to be plastic and double wrapped. So that's the similar story to the durians. It's banned in some countries on public transport, and I've heard of planes having to be grounded because of the smell. But the season has wrapped up for, well, for the most recent season in the top end, and unfortunately it was well below average. I headed out to the rural area in Darwin to find out why. Yeah, you can kind of smell it. Kind of smell it. Yeah, yeah, you can. I mean, it doesn't smell really strong, but no. I'm sure if it was ripe, it would. It'll be a lot riper, it'll be a lot stronger. It, my name is Han Xiong Xia. I'm from Tropical Primary Products out at Lambles Lagoon. It doesn't smell as I thought it might because there aren't that many durian around or really no ripe ones. What's going on? Uh, this year we had a very poor season. For, uh, we had a phenomenal flowering and in August. However, the weather was quite warm then, so a lot of the flowers didn't develop to fruit, which was a very bummer for us, but um, yeah, so we've, we had about close to five tonnes of durian this year again. It's, it's a, we were expecting a little bit more than that, but it was also very late. What were you expecting? We were probably expecting close to about 15 to 20 tonnes. We were, we were concerned about the amount of fruit that we wouldn't get with the amount of the prolific flowering we had. However, the warmer than average temperature in August, um, the fruit didn't set and um, we were pretty um, upset. Yeah, it sound as, sounds as though it was set to be a bumper and instead it's been the opposite. How does it feel as a grower when you think you're sitting on quite a crop? Well, it's each year is different. You know, one year you could have good year, one year you could have bad year. You just can't 
predict the weather, you can't predict the, the, the future. So we just take it one, one day at a time and we just, we just hope it will be a better year next year. So what has that done for your markets? If you thought you were going to have maybe even an oversupply and it's gone the opposite way, how has that played out? Um, well, there's not much food on the market, so the, the price stayed up a little bit more higher than we were expecting. We didn't peak until like Christmas, which was we're about three weeks behind as well. So, so that time really well, the fruits that arrived to the market in Christmas Day were sold out. Um, and then the shipment after that, unfortunately, got stuck on the way down to Sydney. With more weather, I'm assuming? Correct. Yeah, it was stuck on the Barclay Highway. Oh. Left Christmas Day and, and unfortunately um, it got stuck on that, that trip between um, Barclay Homestead and the Mount Isa. So we got delayed by four days, so it arrived four days late. Was it then, you know, saleable? Uh, we lost a portion of it, maybe about 30%, but I think everything else was moved for the New, for the new Year period, I guess. With that, if you've had less supply and the price has held up a little bit more than expected, how has it played out for your bottom line? This year's definitely a loss for us, for Durand's. Most years, is it's either break-even or, or a loss. Durand itself, is, is, it's a very intensive crop that we haven't perfected yet. Being in northern Australia, it is a hard crop to grow. Uh, being uniquely, um, we have two distinct seasons, whereas... Durian is grown in the tropics, true tropical trees, whereas we've got the, 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 the real tr- tropics and then the real dry season, which has just played havoc to the trees. Sometimes you've got to be on the wall and trying to make sure the trees survive the dry season or survive the, the great flooding of the Northern Territory. How long have you been doing this? We've done this for 30 years. We've been here in 87 and we've started bringing cloner varieties into Australia through quarantine and we've, we've developed this property here. So you've been in the game for quite a while and in the in I mean how many times have you actually made a, a decent profit in that 30 years? Probably two or three years. <laughs> and yet you're still here giving it a crack. Yeah, durian takes a long long time to mature from planting to pro- potentially first fruit is 10 years. Wow. So you have to sit on the long game. And in one year we, we do hope that eventually it will will break even and or will make a good profit and you know, eventually everyone will have a try Australian-grown durian. So how do you keep the doors open, the gates open, you know, the, the fuel in the truck? We generally just diversify to other crops. So we have a shorter um, growing period crops such as jackfruit and, dur- and mangoes and pomelos and water apples. They'll, they'll keep the, the income coming in. Mango is our main crop. Um, and then after that is probably jackfruit and then durian. So, so in general, that, that's how it keeps flowing. Just the durian was a hobby at the beginning for my parents, and then we diversified to growing it commercially. You're listening to The Country Hour, and you're hearing from Han. We're out at his durian farm out in the Darwin rural area, and it's um, typically, I've been told, I've never experienced it before, a very smelly crop and not a very delicious crop, but I guess that depends on who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell me about the the market who is eating this notoriously stinky fruit vast majority of southeast asian customers uh, that they would eat it um or asian customers that we did they like it for the they follow the nose for the aroma and then after that it's the the texture is like a sweet custard um with a little bit of um aftertaste of really strong garlic um however there's been a um push towards a lot of the uh, people who who don't eat meat, like the meat alternate guys, the the vegans, they they've started eating this as their protein or their carbohydrate supplement. So they've also started getting to these durians. If you notice, they have that. But most of our customers are generally 
the Asian customers who do miss it when they don't get to go home, especially in the last three years when the lockdown's been, they weren't able to travel, so they still were able to get some fresh durian in Australia. So you've, you're not really making a profit um, and there's not really a lot of fruit around. And, I, you know, I'd like, like this to be a really positive story, Han. It, I really was really hopeful. But you're still here and I don't know whether it's a grimace or a smile on your face. Um, you, you're still happy to continue growing the durian? Yeah, my parents say just keep going. You know, it, it's, eventually it will turn around. Eventually you find something. You know, when we first came, we, we lost trees after trees after trees. You know, when we first arrived through quarantine, we had, what, 40 tree through quarantine. Two popped out after two years. You know, you tried a different method. You try this, you try that. You have to keep going. You know, if you don't keep going, um, um, you know, it's, it, you, you look at back and you say, what a waste. So eventually, I guess, we'll just keep going until um, we do really throw, the, throw the, uh, the hat in. We've just come back to the packing shed and there is a smell I can smell from many steps away. Uh, what have you got for me? Oh, I've got my, maybe one of the last durians that I can find in the salvage in the, in the field. So we've got it right in front of me. It's a spiky hard fruit. Um, it's green and it's, I don't know, we'll, we're ready to crack into it and see what you think. I'm a bit nervous, but give it, give it a go. So we'll, we'll come, we'll, there's, there's always a star on the bottom and that's always the weakest point in the fruit. So you have to use a pair of knife or secateurs or stuff. Just point it in there and just crack it open. There you go. Smell it now, it's even stronger. Oh yeah, I can smell it now. What do you smell? What do you describe it? Oh, I think it, it smells maybe gassy or like if you've had some fruit that's fallen off the tree and kind of just sat on the grass for a couple of days. So we got these lovely little aerials in the middle, the yellow, and this is what you eat. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a seed in, there is a seed in there, it's like a seed probably about half the size. Yeah. So grab that. Grab that. Oh, it's really, it's kind of firm on the outside, but it's actually quite soft. Soft. And just, just eat the whole thing. Just eat the whole thing. Just watch it. Don't breathe it. Don't breathe it. Oh, no. Too late. I've already breathed it in. I mean, you, you should, the tip of eating a durian is not to actually inhale it. If you don't, haven't tried it before, just to put it in your mouth and just think of something else and try it. All right. Let's, let's go. Oh. Loving it? Your, no. your face is just going. <laughs> Describe my face. I don't know. It's just a sour. It doesn't look that fantastic. What do you think? What, how do you describe it? Sweet? It tastes savoury. Yep. And I'm, I'm not a fan of sweet and savoury things being the opposite. I think the texture's almost like a really soft mango, maybe. A bit custard. Yeah, a bit custardy. Um, but it's just that, look, I don't think it's as bad as I thought. Mm. I, you told me that there was going to be some kind of garlic flavour, and I think I can taste the garlic. Um, I didn't give you the other description, unfortunately. What's the other description? Stinky socks. Yeah, I get the I get the stinky socks vibe. <laughs> That's durian farmer Han Chung Sia. He was giving me my first try of durian. Not a fan, if I'm honest. If you have ever tried one, particularly if you've loved it, I'd be very keen to hear about that. Zero four eight seven double nine one zero five seven is the text line. Unfortunately, not a good year for durian, and the season has wrapped up already. It is 19 to 1 on the Country Hour. Talking cotton next, but here's Lainey Wilson. Things a man ought to know. Lainey Wilson, things a man ought to know. It's quarter to one. My name's Ashley from Bam Bam Springs Station. I'm Jacqueline Dakin from Anthony Lagoon. I'm Georgie from Catherine. And you're listening to the Country Hour. <laughs> <laughs>
Michelle Stanley with you this afternoon. Good to have you along. The development of the NT's cotton industry will only generate a small amount of jobs and limited tax revenue according to research by the left-leaning Australia Institute. In a submission to the NT government's proposed surface water take policy, the Australian Australia Institute argues the actual economic benefits of a cotton industry need to be considered. Research Director Rod Campbell says cotton farming across Australia isn't a job-intensive industry. I guess when I say that it's not a jobs-intensive industry, it's worth looking at the numbers. The 2021 census shows that only 466 people in Australia listed their occupation as cotton growing and gins employed a little bit over 1,000. This is really a a fraction of 1% of agricultural employment. And if governments are looking for policies to expand agricultural employment, Uh, they really should probably be looking at other industries. This even applies to upstream and downstream industries to the cotton industry. You know, it's, it's it's worth noting that the cotton industry tends to buy inputs like uh, fuel and fertilizer that are produced internationally. You know, they're not going to be produced and creating jobs around Catherine uh, or, you know, out at Cape Plains or anywhere like that. Uh, and it sells an unprocessed product, or aside, aside from ginning, which is basically removing the seeds, uh, it sells an unprocessed product almost entirely for export. You know, the, there's no jobs in textile manufacturing, <clears throat> at least not under current proposals. So you know, the, the really tiny number of jobs we're talking about don't expand into upstream or downstream industries either. Um, So we're really talking about very few jobs, even in related industries. And, you know, I really think that needs to be uh, kept in mind when considering policy around cotton and irrigation development. Why does it matter that the cotton industry might not end up employing thousands of people and generating millions of dollars in tax return. Not every industry needs to be huge, right? Yeah, absolutely. And look, I, I don't have any problems with a cotton industry. You know, I, I don't, I'm not one of these people who says, you know, Australia shouldn't grow cotton. I, I, think, I think that's up to farmers. Um, you know, they know what grows best on their land. Uh, it's up to governments, though, to responsibly manage water resources and it's it's far from clear that that's what's proposed. You know, the history of the Northern Territory on managing environmental assets is is not great. Uh, so the idea that the government should be going uh, ahead with this you know, on economic grounds in terms of this this water giveaway and plans for expansion you know, is it's not not really on, on economic grounds. It doesn't seem that there's a strong case for that. Research Director of the Australia Institute, Rod Campbell, he was speaking with Dan Fitzgerald. We did reach out to the NT Farmers Association for a response, but haven't heard back. And just on cotton, you might have seen a story on the ABC News website about some NT cotton farmers allegedly clearing land without a permit. That story is airing on ABC TV's 7.30 program tonight and you'll be able to hear more about it on tomorrow's Country Hour. 
The Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. 11 to 1. Can you imagine losing half your income overnight? Mid last year, Nigel Brown from Western Australia's Murchison region had been mustering his cattle to offload amid some strong cattle prices. Then, seemingly out of nowhere, the price crashed. When foot and mouth disease was confirmed in Indonesia, the potential threat of the disease was enough to turn the market on its head. Nigel Brown was forced to sell his cattle for half their value. And even though FMD hasn't made it to Australian shores, he believes the scare did a lot of damage to the cattle industry's reputation. Yeah, it really impacted us you know, when everything was green and rosy and obviously got aeroplanes in and conducted a muster and got all our cattle down heading towards the yards and the FND speculation then started to unfold and, you know, the more the media broadcasted it, you know, the, the lower the cattle prices went and we virtually ended up having, having to settle it or settle and sell our cattle for half of their value. And as you mentioned, a big part of that was speculation, maybe fear that people were hearing. What was the message exactly that was being put out that people were understanding the situation to be? I think it was just so much scare t- tactics that, you know, if it came in, the, the, all the cattle value would be worth nothing, even though it was a, you know, a localised incident. Then it was the risk that all the pastoralists would have to then either, you know, destock and, and the flood of cattle to the market, what that would do. And, you know, it was really everything then unfolded in people's minds versus reality and, and the price really took a big dive. And that would have been experienced across the board, is that correct? Yeah, sadly, had you had cattle in the yards to sell that, that week or two, you know, that the speculation was all unfolding, then, yeah, anyone in a bad situation like that, unfortunately, like we were, would have the same consequence. So then what was the next step? Once you had to sell your cattle at that decreased rate, what then happened after that? It's like any news story, you wait a week or two or three after it and everyone forgets about it and the price goes back to where, you know, close to where it originally was. So how harmful would you have said that whole experience was? Obviously, we're talking about um, a monetary loss, but did you feel as though reputation was also damaged through that? I think everything. You You know, hundreds of thousands of dollars was lost, your morals were lost, your spirit was just destroyed. You know, everything good you were trying to do was just totally unfolded in a week. Now, what's your feeling? Do you feel secure and or was it all, or did you always feel that way? Look, I think it's always in the back of your mind, you know, and it, and it really does depend how good we have quarantine and the borders and, you know, international travels and, you know, those high-risk areas and helping, you know, our neighbouring countries to try and get it under control before it's a problem to us. So I think, you know, risk mitigation there is priority number one. I mean, it's always a, a minor threat to us here. Yeah, but the sad fact is we can't vaccinate against it because if we do, it's a, it's a live virus and we'll then be treated as if we have foot and mouth. So yeah, it's, it's a bad situation to be in. Yes, we could fix it and vaccinate, but then we jeopardise our own market again. So now is it just the matter of moving on with business and, and fingers crossed, obviously it doesn't arrive to our shores, but then, yeah, just, just getting on with it? Yeah, like now it's you know, around the campfire, it's not even talked about except our big loss. Um, <laughs> other than that, it's, it's not even on anyone's radar, really. It's, you know, it's something to be aware of, but really not talked about. 
Yeah, and I guess that's what sort of the takeaway here is. Although five months ago that was a very real issue, everyone's moved on. We're now we're now talking floods, fires, uh, etc. Do you, in, on some level, feel as though the impacts have still carried on, but everyone's just forgotten and moved on? Well, I mean, from our side, the impacts are definitely carrying on. You know, we had big budgets in with the banks, and we have to review all those budgets now with them and meetings tomorrow. And you know, and, and change our in goals and game plans to address the deficit in financial loss. And yeah, so we'll, we'll definitely be feeling this one for a, a long time to come. Nigel Brown is a pastoralist from WA's Murchison. He was speaking with Demetria Panagiotaris. Seven to one on the topic over the last few years, pest and disease outbreaks seem to have been increasing. I mean, we've just talked about FMD. There's lumpy skin disease in Indonesia as well. Back home, varroa mite began to devastate the bee industry last year. So in order to get ahead of these types of outbreaks... How do you immunise a honeybee? Until recently, no one really knew. But the US Department of Agriculture has just given conditional approval for its first ever vaccine for bees. And it could be a game changer. Callie Buchanan reports. Give yourself a boost and keep up to date with your vaccinations by visiting us. When you think of vaccination, you probably think of messages like these. But when it comes to vaccinating an insect, advertising campaigns won't be enough. Dr Emily Remnant studies how bees, viruses and parasites interact at the University of Sydney. She explains why vaccinating a bee is not a simple task. So normally when you think about vaccination, you get delivered a piece of a pathogen or an attenuated bacteria and then your immune system produces antibodies and creates an immune memory. In insects, they don't have antibodies. Their immune system is different to that. So having that immune memory, we're not really sure how it works in insects. There is a phenomenon that's just sort of being discovered now called transgenerational immune priming, which is where the offspring receives some kind of immune memory from the mother. So it's received during embryogenesis. They've come up with a mechanism for how the memory can be transmitted, and it's via this protein called vitellogenin, which is another word for it is just the egg yolk protein. And vitellogenin is one of the most abundant proteins in the honeybee ovary. So when the queen lays eggs, she deposits a lot of these proteins into the eggs, and it's thought that this protein actually can bind to parts of the pathogen, so any bacterial proteins that are produced get bundled up with vitellogenin and deposited in the embryo. So any of the offspring from that queen that have these vitellogenin-pathogen combinations are effectively protected against that pathogen. Biotech company Dalen Animal Health has developed America's first bee vaccine to be granted a two-year conditional approval by the US Department of Agriculture. Targeting American fowl brood, it contains dead whole cells of the bacteria that causes the fatal disease. Australian Queen Bee Breeders Association President Richard Sims says it's a problem for beekeepers in every Australian state and territory. It's probably much like the flu for us. It's always there and it's just waiting for the right conditions to appear. What's its impact in the hive and on the queen and breeding of, of a hive? You're supposed to kill that hive and burn boxes and frames or kill the hive and send it away to be uh, radiated. 
So there's no coming back from it? Not really, no. The bees have to die. One way or the other, the bees have to die. If it gets into your breeders, you're in all sorts of trouble. American fowl brood infects the developing brood, the baby bees, killing them and leaving behind spores that can continue to cause disease for between 40 and 80 years. But it's not the specific disease-fighting capability that has Australians taking notice. It's how it's administered. No tiny syringes or walk-in clinics. It uses a common beekeeping practice to deliver the inoculation during the transfer of a queen to a new hive. Richard Sims explains the process. The cages have a little section in them that is primed with candy, so that can be honey or you can use icing sugar. And it's made into a, like a toothpaste thing and that stops the queen getting out. So when you put the queen in the hive, it should take three to four days for the bees to chew through the candy. And by that stage, her pheromones have overtaken everything in the hive and they should all be friends when they come out they should accept the queen and she can begin to lay once her ovaries swell back up. It's during this process that the worker bees or escort bees will be fed the vaccine. They'll incorporate it into the royal jelly that gets fed to the queen who will then pass on the immunity to her young. So the escort bees are there to feed her because queens don't feed themselves So they're there to um, feed her and keep her happy and groom her. While it may not save hives from American fowl brood in Australia, if it works, researchers like Dr Emily Remnant say it could be a game changer for tackling other serious threats, like varroa mite. The studies that I've seen on this particular vaccine have promising results, but they show a reduction in susceptibility, not an elimination of the pathogen. So in Australia, if we see any of this fowl brood in any of our hives, we'd still have to destroy the hives. However, there'd be other diseases, perhaps some viral diseases, that reducing the level of that virus in a hive would would be a wonderful outcome. That's probably the main excitement I have for this research is not necessarily the specific disease that they've been testing it against, but the potential that this could actually work for other diseases. Really nutting out how parent-to-offspring immune Thriving can work would be really beneficial. Dr Emily Remnant from the University of Sydney. She was speaking with Callie Buchanan. And it's worth noting a spokeswoman for the Australian Department of Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry says there are no vaccines approved for use in bees in Australia and no applications are currently being assessed. The ABC reached out to the manufacturer of this conditionally approved US vaccine. They didn't reply. It is news time now. It's one o'clock. I'm Cameron Berryman from Wild Barra Fisheries. We've got vessels fishing all over the northern waters bringing in wild-caught barramundi. You're listening to The Country Hour. Hello, hello. It's five past one. Michelle Stanley with you. Have you been enjoying the rain? Is it nice and green at your place these days? It's dried off a little bit, but it has greened up in some parts. How are the weeds, though? It's often the downside, isn't it, to good rainfall? Before 1.30, you'll meet a bloke who's been trialling a different way to reduce weeds at his place to pretty good effect. You'd probably say, if you want to say percentage, 90, 95%. We all know that it's, it's the cattle and how we manage them. That's why the weeds, you don't go into a national park that's never been touched by, by cows or Europeans and, and see cider growing. 
His take won't be for everyone, though. You'll hear it before half past one. Before the news, we were chatting about cotton and the economic benefits or potentially the lack of economic benefits to, uh, according to the Australia Institute. We've had a call in from Dan uh, in Lenia. He says he's seen a lot of cotton trash on the sides of the Stewart Highway. He says the industry needs to clean up its act. Sarah in Parap says cotton will bring next to no jobs, more water taken from rivers, more bulldozing and more dams. But somehow Territorians are meant to be okay with the government rolling out the red carpet for this industry. No thanks, says Sarah. And Charlie in Catherine says they don't know the numbers on the cotton industry in that region, but they know plenty of employment in building gins, servicing vehicles and equipment and locally sourced parts and employees. Charlie says they're not for or against cotton, but the industry has added to Catherine from what they've seen. Thank you for those texts. You can get in touch on 0487991057. We were also chatting about durian fruit, my first taste test of a durian. Uh, Judith says uh, she tried durian in Malaysia and has no sense of smell, which helped a lot. Judith says she doesn't mind the taste. It was never allowed at the kids' school or at home, uh, which was the housekeeper's rule. Thank you, Judith. Billy Lynch is with you from the Bureau of Meteorology. Billy, have you ever tried a durian? Look, I've tried durian ice cream. Oh, once. yeah. What's that like? Uh, I think it was a bit more mellow and um, palatable. Okay. But I've never tried the fresh stuff. Oh, well, maybe I'll have to give the ice cream a go because it didn't go well on the fresh stuff. Um, but anyway, <laughs> that's not what we have you on for at eight minutes past one. Um, in rainfall, well, in weather, um, I saw there's been a few mils of rain overnight across the Territory. What have we seen? Yeah, look, in the top end, um, not heaps, but because uh, the rain has been quite isolated, but Walker Creek came in with 52 millimetres. Adelaide River at uh, Tortilla Flats, uh, just under 30 millimetres. Down through the Victoria River district, we saw Pigeonhole and Townsend Creek come in with around 11 or 12 millimetres. And uh, further south, um, Look, Fink came in with 23 and Kalgoora 20, uh, Wataka 4 millimetres. So there's been a little bit out there, but it certainly hasn't been widespread. And any more on the way? Yeah, look, there is, but um, the headline today is still just isolated showers and thunderstorms across the Northern Territory. Um, just looking at what's happening right now, um, we've got scattered thunderstorms in the... The kind of northeast of the territory around the, the Gulf of Carpentaria, so uh, along that Gulf Coast south of Numbawa, uh, across the MacArthur River region down into the northeast Barkley, down to about Camerwheel. Um, we've got, yeah, that's probably the most active part of the Northern Territory at the moment, and there's a, a couple of thunderstorms developing just to the west of Daly Waters at the moment, um, pretty close to or just north of the Buchanan Highway. Later this afternoon, it will get a little bit more active. Um, so really, you know, anywhere across the top end down to the South Australian border is a chance. But as I say, it's it's still going to be quite isolated today. Um, any storms that do develop across the southern districts, uh, particularly west of Alice Springs, there is the risk of some heavy falls. 
um, because there's still quite a, a tropical air mass down there. So we could see 20 to 30 millimetres in a fairly short space of time. And um, like yesterday, if we do see that happening, we'll put out some severe thunderstorm warnings. And um, we, we did ask yesterday about any kind of monsoonal activity on the cards. Is that getting clearer for you at all? Um, it is a little clearer. It, it certainly looks like the trough at the moment, which is across the southern districts. So it's certainly very clear that that moves into the Barkley um, from tomorrow and into Friday. And then over the weekend, that trough deepens. So what we're going to see is that the risk of the showers and thunderstorms decreasing across the southern NT, increasing across the, the Barkley, yeah, really the area between Tennant Creek and Catherine. Um, and then sort of the weekend and definitely into next week, that trough continues to deepen and it is probably going to draw in that sort of monsoonal influence um, from the north of Australia down into northeastern Australia. So, yeah, northeast um, or northern Queensland going to get some monsoonal influence. Showers and thunderstorms going to also increase generally across the northern half of the Territory next week in association with that trough. So, I mean, what that means is, you know, catchments, the ground is already very wet, so we're probably a bit more susceptible to, to flooding should um, rainfall increase too much. But what it is too early to say is exactly where that sort of the trough and monsoon system might might focus, whether it be more over North Queensland or parts of the Northern Territory. That's still an open question, but uh, next week is generally looking wetter than it is this week. Okay, and, and any clue how much could be in it? Oh, look, next week it's probably a bit too early to say, but um, I guess... The remainder of this week and into the weekend through the Barkley and that MacArthur River region would be looking at 10 to 30 millimetres, but isolated falls of around 75 millimetres, possibly more. Um, how much more it increases after that is something for us to think about and talk about during the next few days, Michelle. Yes, and we will continue to ask. Thank you very much for that. We'll catch you later on. That's Billy Lynch from the Bureau of Meteorology. Know your emergency plan this summer. A third consecutive London. And rely on ABC to be with you. What can I do? Broadcasting up-to-the-minute critical information. We have issued an emergency warning. Online at ABC Emergency and on your local ABC radio. ABC radio, reliable Stay safe, stay connected. I don't know what I'd do without the ABC. Download the ABC Listen app and stay connected with your local ABC radio station. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. You heard yesterday from cattle producers in central Australia who have been loving all the rainfall. It's also been a great time for all the native wildlife and flora turning the countryside into a sea of green. Steve Eldridge is the operations manager at the Australian Wildlife Conservancy northwest of Alice Springs. He says it's been a great relief to get some good soaking rain. Well, the place is just a sea of green. I mean, it, it, we have had reasonable rains in the last couple of years, but before that we had a really long extended uh, dry period where you know, things were just dry and dusty, 
dirt everywhere, not much grass, but it's just completely transformed the place, this last lot of rain that we've had. Well, rainfall like this doesn't happen very often in this, in this um, region, so the community, it's just invigorating when we get rain like this. Um, you know, you, you persist for so long with hot, dry, dusty weather, and when you get nice rains like this that transform the environment, it's just invigorating. Have you noticed, you know, any different, are there any, any birds coming out that don't normally come out, or any animals? What kind of activity can we see from our animals? Yeah, so we've got um, a lot of native rodent species. Um, you know, when you think of rodents, you think about rats and mice, but we've got a lot of native ones as well, and those species... Um, they're able to persist in the dry uh, times, but when it rains, you get this flush of vegetation growth, which means that there's heaps of food available for them, and they're able to respond to that and breed up really quickly into really big numbers, and that sort of resets their population. And once things get dry again, then their numbers, the population size is greater, and it enables them to persist during the next dry time. Uh, and what about bird life? Yeah, so, I mean, we've got a, a lot of nomadic birds in this environment, so they're the species that move around the landscape and um, move to areas where there is food available. So at the moment, um, after all of this rainfall, we're going to get increases in, in seeds and in insects and in um, reptiles and that sort of thing, so we are going to see um, big increases in bird populations. So we're already starting to see budgies come in and... Um, some of the seed-eating birds like finches and doves. And then as time goes on, we'll get um, increases in the insectivorous species and the um, nectivorous species. So it's, it, it all happens in progression, if you like. Wow. Um, and are there many negatives? Are there any negative side effects for what we're seeing in Alice? Yeah, I mean, you can't go past um, weeds. You know, these... Um, periods of extended or above average rainfall cause increased weed growth and um, you know with our work on on New Haven as well as Nullardew um, weeds is, is an issue for us and so we are going to have to be managing weeds um, maybe it will be we'll have to put more resources into it this year after the rain uh, we've also got the issue of bushfires as well you know these summer rains tend to stimulate grass growth and as the grass dies off then you get real uh, really large increases in fire fuel loads and there's a real risk of um, those really big hot fire hot summer bushfires coming through and devastating the landscape so we'll have to um, reduce those fuel loads in the winter months when it's cool so we'll, we'll be lighting small fires that reduce the fuel loads and that will prevent the spread of those big wildfires when summer comes next year. That's Steve Eldridge. He's the Operations Manager at the Australian Wildlife Conservancy. And if you head on to the ABC News website, you can see some wonderful images of just how green and wet the Red Centre is right now. It's so good to see. 17 past one on the country hour. This is the Zac Brown Band. It's called Homegrown. Homegrown, Zac Brown Band. G'day, I'm Jermaine. G'day, I'm Caleb. And we're from Territory Bees. We're out here in Darwin's rural area attending to some hives and you're listening to the Country Hour. It's 21 past 
one. Now, with all the rain in recent weeks, the grass is growing across cattle country, but weeds will also be taking hold at this time of year. One pastoralist near Catherine says he's seen a significant reduction in weeds on his property since changing his grazing system. Max Rowley caught up with him to find out more. <laughs> Kelpies are quite partial to jumping in the trough. Not that they've been working. Yeah, g'day, my name's Jeremy Trembath. Uh, we farm just north of Catherine. At the moment, we are standing at a trough point um, in one of our medium sort of sized paddocks that we would graze earlier on in the year. And um, we're just looking through the grasses and weeds and species and what's around. There's, there's, there's definitely a lot, a lot of good and um what are the weeds that you you see around here main one would be cider that's about it that we can look at right here and um you have to look pretty hard to find them but they are there so how are you managing the weeds that you're you're seeing around this place basically we're not um we remove the stock which is is essentially the problem and um nature seems to manage herself can you take me through what you mean there yeah, sure. So we, we're on a 1,000 hectares. We um, basically, over the growing season, which is what you'd call your weed season, in inverted commas, we destock all of the native pastures and we bring those animals in one mob into the improved areas where we graze them on a rotation. And we basically leave the native pasture be and then we've got good growth, ground cover. We're, we're not being eroded. We're not growing weeds and um, we're ending up with a full standing body of feed in the paddock when it comes time to graze. Right, so at the moment this paddock is empty and and all of your cattle have gone into just a a smaller portion of the property. Yeah, it sure is. So we've got smaller paddocks broken up, uh, various sizes, with with improved pastures, and there are native pastures in there as well. Whatever wants to grow it can. And, and yeah, the cattle are just basically off, off most of the farm and staying off until, you know, might be eight months until we're grazing a paddock again. What kind of percentage of the property are you spelling? Oh, well, 90%, really. Um, as I say, we're only grazing 10% or so of it. So 90% untouched. Um, and say, if you're going to graze a paddock for four months of the year it's going to be eight months it, that paddock will be spelled for and that that's sort of every year and how long have you you been doing this wet season spelling oh, a bit over three years now um basically when we got back from new zealand taking that temperate uh, system and flipping it on its head i guess we came from a italian ryegrass and clover type system we were working with there with a basal cover of around 90 95 percent and um yeah i mean we we changed it completely and made the concept work here in in our system on our farm and since making that change how how much is a place like where we are now around this this uh water trough how much has the weed pressure changed yeah like i was saying to you before max it's hard to give a quantitative result but a lot i mean you'd probably say if you want to say percentage 90 95 percent we all know that it's it's the cattle and how we manage them that's why the weeds you don't go into a national park that's never been touched by by cows or europeans and and see cider growing if we take the cattle out of the out of the equation and us 
and we sort of we sort of let nature go for it. Um, that's it's competition, I guess. We're we're letting the perennial desirables come through, and basically swamp those weeds, and we're having pretty good success. What were the weeds that you were seeing here in the past? What would this place have looked like here? So the main ones we get here in, in the Catherine region and for us specifically is cider, uh, hyptus, sticky weed. Um, then we're talking some senners and a few other odds and ends. Um, but they're the main ones. Probably cider's our bigger because it's a perennial. Um, so that's probably our biggest battle. And having all of your cattle on 10% of the farm over the wet season, does that mean you've had to reduce your stocking rates at all? No, it's, I mean, we've, we've increased it. With having those, those paddocks destocked, it means that we've realised 100% of standing feed in the native rangelands and um, in our 10% that we are using over the wet season it's um, because of that rotational grazing it's actually of value to the pastures and stimulating them so we are able to graze more animals and in territory terms jeremy you're still a fairly small property here at a thousand hectares but what do you think bigger producers could learn from what you've done here oh bro <laughs> that's probably nothing max but um it, it's sort of up to them um, I think I think with each individual place um, there's things to be had and things to be done I just the one thing is you've got to give land a break at some point if we destock if we sorry stocking pasture and um, rangelands for sort of 10 15 longer years without a break from those heavy cloven hoof animals it's going to deteriorate there's no two ways about it I just say give give land a break every now and then do you think you could do this kind of what you've done on scale <laughs> i'd definitely say yes but um that's not for me to say because i'm at my scale and and um that's what we we do and you're saying you know this approach has benefited the land how about the hip pocket oh definitely max i mean it's not about what you make it's about what you keep essentially and um in two ways one we're growing more feed for cattle which is what we're about um but then also we're not buying expensive chemical uh putting in a tank that you have to put petrol in and then putting diesel in the machine that you drive the tank around in and actually my time for going around and spraying and probably those few years i'll go without cancer at the end is pretty handy too it's pretty um, intensive though it seems from what you're doing moving the cattle around during the wet season instead of you know letting them roam free it sure is um and that's okay it's it's more work in a way but it's a lot less um it's more work of doing what i enjoy and appreciating the land and being with the cattle rather than a petrol engine blaring in my ear with um 24d coming out the end killing things Jeremy Trembath grazes cattle just north of Catherine. He was speaking with Max Rowley. Time now to check in on the cattle markets. John Traeger has the details from Dublin in South Australia. Good afternoon. Quality was generally good as agents offered 150 live weight cattle and 10 open auction cattle. A good feel of buyers were in attendance and all operated, and pro- but prices, however, returned a much easier trend in this opening sale for 2023. 
Ealing steers sold in a wide range from 488 cents to 540 cents, with Ealing heifers returning 362 to 482 cents. Grown steers sold from 320 to 414 cents, as medium cows sold to 220 cents. A small offering of bulls sold from 220 to a top of 316 cents a kilo. This is John Traeger of the South Australian Livestock Exchange for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the Country Hour. It's 29 past one. Just quickly, Dan Fitzgerald joins me in the studio. You have some breaking news about Sun Cable. Yeah, Michelle, this is the company that had plans to build a massive solar farm near Elliott uh, in the middle of the Territory and then uh, export that electricity to Singapore. Uh, We can tell you that uh, the company has entered voluntary administration just a short time ago. I've got a short statement here. It says the voluntary administration process will now unlock a further path forward for the company to access additional capital for continued development of this marquee project. Um, yeah, so a bit of a developing story there. Sun Cable entered voluntary administration. Uh, we'll hope to bring you more about that on the Country Hour tomorrow. Thank you very much for that, Dan. That's it from me today. I'll catch you tomorrow. It's half past one.